Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. Well, if someone would ask us, what is the fundamental definition or the basic calling as a Christian? In other words, the most basic down-to-earth calling as a Christian. How, how could you summarize this? An easy way to summarize it would be to say a faithful disciple of Christ. Now, of course, when we just stay, say that and keep it at a basic level, that can mean a lot of things. On the one hand, we could go to an extreme of saying we just try really hard uh, to live out our faith, and we do this by the works of the flesh. Uh, we do this by our own abilities, and we can fall very close, if not fully into, a view of a federal vision where we're justified by our own covenant faithfulness. Obviously, we want to say that there's a problem with that, as that brings us back to Rome. We can go to another extreme as well, uh, where we can go to more of the radical grace guys and, and just say, well, you don't really try at all. If, if you're somewhat convicted, maybe you kind of worry about a few things, but don't really worry about much in a Christian life. And so obviously, we, we wouldn't say either extreme's any good, and we don't want to really try to incorporate one thing into another and so we do have to work through these difficult words of the Apostle Paul because we are called to be faithful disciples of Christ. We're called to honor our God. And as we're called to honor our God, it really leaves us with that issue. If we're created and called to do the Lord's will, how do we do the Lord's will as disciples of Christ? How do we enter into the Lord's rest and truly enjoy the rest of Christ uh, without uh, falling into our own tyrannical ways of doing things. And so as we consider this, we'll just divide it where the catechism basically divides the two points in the fourth commandment. Why the word of God? Why is that such a high priority for the catechism? And secondly, how do I conform? How do I know if I'm conforming to the Lord? So first, why the word of God? Well, the Catechism tells us as it walks through uh, the general obligations of the fourth commandment that we meet together so the gospel ministry and schools are maintained. Uh, this is dealing primarily uh, with seminaries in terms of the vision of the Catechism. That's a desire that there are continually ministers uh, that serve the Lord. But notice that in terms of, of our priority where it starts, that we attend the assembly of God's people. And I love the language of assembly. This uses that Old Testament concept of understanding it's not just God being God and, and, and we just kind of arbitrarily worship him, but it's understanding that God works in the context of an assembly. You think all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and, and, and the building of a family. What, what's the intention there for that garden, for that family to spread out into the earth and for a worshiping community, a worshiping assembly of God's people was the intention prior to the fall. 
And we think about the beauty of Genesis 3.15, when we think of this concept of an assembly, where the Lord says, I'm going to divide the human race, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, and the Lord is going to keep for himself basically an assembly of people to worship him, secured in a redeemer. We think of Moses delivering Israel out of Egypt. It's not just Moses who's delivered, but it's the assembly of God's people who assemble before Mount Sinai. So we see there this theme that the catechism wants us to call to our mind, that the church doesn't just start in the New Testament age. It doesn't just start when we plan a church. The church's history goes all the way back to the opening of Scripture, where we think about God communing with his people throughout history. But it goes on to tell us about the word of God and the need to sit under the preaching of the gospel. We might say, well, why is the preaching of the gospel so important? Well, when we open scripture, how does scripture start? It starts with this nothingness that's going on. And 1 verse 3 is where we hear the Lord speak, or at least where the word of the Lord goes forth and the creation comes into being. Merely by his word, he gives a command, and what is nothing all of a sudden becomes something. So we're seeing that, that the word of God in the opening of Scripture is not merely moral persuasion. It's not merely telling us or instructing us or teaching us there's actually an intrinsic power in that word. We think also about the reality of how uh, Genesis 15, was. we talked about this morning, you have the word of the promise, and then you have the visible picture of the promise in Genesis 17, 13 years after the word. And so the Lord is the one who, who gives us word. We think about even creation or the uh, structure of worship. And how the Lord commands Aaron that our worship begins with a call to worship. We're invited in the presence of God. That's how we see it. And it ends in Numbers uh, 6 verse 22. What does the Lord say? Aaron's to lift his hands. Aaron and his sons are to go and to give a blessing, a benediction to God's people. That they go out in the confidence that they have met with their God and the Lord's grace, his peace, his shalom is present with him. Remember that shalom in the Hebrews, not just God tolerating us or, or overlooking things, but it's a true wholeness of a restored relationship with our God. We think of Ezekiel with the dry bones. And we see there we're invited to witness this vision where the Lord invites Ezekiel to be in this valley where there's nothing but dry bones. And Ezekiel notes that, that there's nothing there. It's just death. There, there's no life. And the Lord does what? He commands him, speak. Speak my word. And these bones that are dead, all of a sudden we see the reality of life coming from death, communicating again the importance of God, showing the power of his word, overcoming the impossibility. What does the Lord reveal about Christ as the agent of redemption? He is a word from heaven. He is the incarnate word. He is the action of God confirming the word of the prophets. So it's important to understand that the, the ministry of the word, that the gospel preaching going out, it's not just instruction. These are not just words 
communicating thoughts that persuade us of truth or falsehood, uh, or hopefully not falsehood, but persuade us away from falsehood is a better way of saying that. Hopefully I'm not persuading you in falsehood. I think Paul says something to Timothy about that. Uh, but the reality is that, that it's not just a, a persuasion of, of something. It's actually the Lord working through this gospel and, and working in our lives. The Catechism goes on to say that as we have the word, primary, first, as we do in Reformed theology, we have the sacrament. So word and sacrament join together, not abstracted, but the priority being the word of God. This is why we have the pulpit and our furniture in the middle of church as Reformed churches. We see the Word of God as a central reality of life. And as the Word of God is going forth, we partake of the sacraments. And why are the sacraments there? Well, we covered this this morning as well. Uh, we saw that when there's a word of the promise, Genesis 15, uh, we have Abram and Sarai sinning, and so you have the sacrament of circumcision, reminding him that the Lord will bring forth the seed of the woman through natural generation, the Lord will do this. That's the point and purpose of the sign. And so it's a visible presentation of the gospel, if you will. Uh, church fathers speak of the thing and the thing signified. So we don't want to confuse uh, the reality of this. The thing would be God, would be Christ. The thing signified in, in the sacrament is signifying God and his grace and his mercy. And so when, when we reverse this and we start looking to the sacrament for life, uh, we're almost, we're getting very close and potentially uh, making an idol of the sacrament, like what we heard with Hezekiah and his reforms, and destroying the snake. Snake was very good. God ordained it, served its purpose. When we start worshiping uh, the things that are symbolized as a substance of life, we miss the giver of life. And this is why as Reformed people also, we say the Word of God has that priority, that, that we're consciously being called back to our God, understanding who He is and recognizing our place. So how do we get here? We, we've covered a lot of Scripture, basically going through the, the thought process of the Reformers, thought process of our catechism. But what is Paul saying to Timothy? And it's very important. This is why... I wanted to go through, through Timothy this evening. Because this is an important transition, if you remember. We're going from a time of where the apostles or individuals would receive prophecy. This wasn't uncommon. Uh, we get a sense in the Corinthian church that individuals would just receive prophecy. Uh, and there's a call to have order, a way to structure that worship. There's a call prior to that, 1 Corinthians 13, a reminder that love continues. Prophecy and these things are going to cease, but love's going to continue uh, in terms of the church life. So this is where Timothy is important, because we're moving from this open canon, meaning revelation is still given to the church, to a time when the canon's closed, which means that there's no more revelation given to the church. We have the Word of God. We have the books of the Bible. This is the word of God. And so when Paul writes this to Timothy, especially 2 Timothy is sort of a touching letter where you see it as Paul's farewell uh, to one that he has mentored. 1 Timothy is where Paul is saying, listen, this is how I want you to conduct yourself as a minister. So we're, we're learning what, what does Paul, the apostle, expect of the ministry of the gospel? Well, as Paul writes... 
he writes something rather significant and why I wanted to start at chapter 3. Because as Paul writes these things, he, he speaks of conducting yourself in the house of God, the living God, the pillar. And so we say, okay, this sounds like Paul's taking care of administrative stuff, like, like we can see Paul doing in his letters, you know, talking about what, what the church can do, when he's coming, what he expects. But then all of a sudden in verse 16, he breaks out, and some say this may be an early Christian hymn or an early Christian doxology. We, we don't know for sure. Uh, but that's what some speculate of this. If you notice here, he, the Apostle Paul is writing about Christ, the manifestation of Christ, the vindication of Christ, meaning that he's been raised to life, is the one that's proclaimed among the nations, so the gospel goes out. But the reason why I call this to your attention is because he says the mystery of godliness. Now, when he says that, we say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean somehow we... We go through life and, and we stumble on godliness and there's nothing clear about godliness. Well, why does he say mystery? Is Paul embracing some sort of this pre-Gnostic mystery religion where somehow we encounter a God through some special means, uh, kind of like what we heard in Colossians? Well, when Paul speaks of mystery, it's important to understand mystery is basically, it's, it's an inside joke. It's a way of bringing this into English. So it's something that maybe certain people in the community, you, you make a certain phrase, you know, we can do this in our families, and make a certain phrase. You kind of know the story behind that phrase, and, and everyone around the table might chuckle, right? Other people who are outside the, the group may say, why is everybody laughing at that? Seems like sort of a, a strange thing to say. I don't get the humor. But then when they let you in, and they tell you the story behind the phrase, you go, oh, that is kind of funny. I, I get how you, how you find this funny every time you say this phrase. That's basically what mystery means. It's not knowing something, and then all of a sudden this is coming to light. So when the Apostle Paul uses mystery, he's speaking of how the intention of God has remained hidden. So uh, the Jews miss Christ as Messiah because they have an expectation of Christ, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. He brings in the messianic kingdom and sits upon the throne of David. That's what the Christ does. That's what the Messiah does. And what does he look like? Well, you figure he's going to be sort of a Joshua type figure, right? He's going to be a mighty warrior. He's going to be strong. He's going to be majestic, but he's going to be very scholarly. He's going to know the scriptures, and he's going to be an individual you look to and, and you think almost in our day and age, sort of like a, an action figure in, in, in a movie, you know, the action hero that you look at him, and he's a guy that when things go bad, he's the one who stands up, and, and he goes to war, and he makes things happen. He's not going to be a carpenter. He's not going to look like an ordinary guy. It's not going to be someone that you look upon and is hanging out with fishermen and common people. That's not the Messiah, right? This is why Christ ends up on the cross. This is our view of the Messiah. This is who you are. Our view and who you are does not measure up. Therefore, you're wrong. But here the Apostle Paul is saying, actually, that's the mystery. We weren't let in on the inside joke as to what Christ was. Now, if you go through the prophets you can find that God did reveal the intention of Christ. The problem is we, we cherry-picked our particular passages, and as we cherry-pick those passages, we define the, 
the Christ as we wanted to define the Christ. And so the Apostle Paul is reminding us, apart from the manifestation of Christ, there is no redemption. Apart from being united to Christ, there is no conforming to Christ. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, with the manifestation of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, these things that um, especially Paul himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees didn't expect, this is the intention of the kingdom. That Christ is going to be seated in heaven, and this world's not going to enter into glory in the way that the original audience at the time of Christ expected. He's going to bring us to glory, but he's going to bring about the new heavens, the new earth, in the full glorified state. And so right here, with this calling of this nature of godliness and this mystery, the Apostle Paul goes on to say there, there's going to be problems. And the problem is people are going to devote themselves to false things, uh, they're going to fall away, and, and so a way of, instead of saying later times, is really saying end times or, or last days, which would be the days we're in. The Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, there is a fundamental problem. People will uh, dedicate themselves to things. They'll, they'll say that uh, what God has ordained as good is not good. Uh, they're going to forbid things that, that God never forbid. But they're going to say, well, these things are no longer permitted. And so what they're doing is they're presenting what we call an aesthetic way of life, which means you, you pull away. Uh, you're, you're pulling away from culture. You're pulling away from everyone. And you're redefining uh, what it means in a new mechanical way to be godly. And Paul's saying that's, that's not what God has done. Notice how the word of God makes things holy. He goes on to tell him, what's, what's, what's the call? What's the desire that the, that the Apostle Paul has for him? He wants him to publicly read the Scriptures. You think about that. Now, some say, when you look at 4 verse 13, the reason Paul is to do that is because not everyone had the Word of God. I mean, we are pretty spoiled today if we think about it. Not only do we have multiple Bibles in our household, most likely. We have different translations. We can actually debate which texts are more uh, consistent to the original language. We can have Bibles on our portable devices. And not just one translation, multiple translations. Uh, we can have Greek and Hebrew. I mean, it's amazing what we have access to. And so people say, well, people in these days didn't have access to that. Therefore, this is why Timothy was to devote himself to public reading. But I would argue that when we read the Word of God, God's actually doing something even in that process. That as we read the Word of God and we hear the truth of the Word of God, we begin to understand the context, the intentions of the Word of God. Because what are people doing? They're devoting themselves to endless myths, genealogies and speculations, as he warns in 1 verse 4. A way of combating this is understanding why are these genealogies in Scripture? Uh, why has Christ entered history? What, what is the story of the fall? And so we start reading the original words. We're, we're not just hearing an opinion on these matters. We're hearing the Word of God as the Lord has revealed it to us, and then we're hearing a sermon or, or exposition 
of these very words. And the reason for this is as Paul reminds Timothy that he is the one that as he does so, he saves both himself and his hearers. An important point here. That it's not just the preaching the gospel is for the congregation because the minister has arrived at such a place of holiness that he doesn't need the word of God anymore. No. The Apostle Paul is saying, actually, as you meditate on the word of God, you think about these words, you think about the gospel, you think about Christ. That's how you save yourself and your congregation. It's not Timothy having confidence in Timothy or Paul saying, have confidence in me. It's Paul saying, think about who Christ is. Think about your God. Contemplate this reality. Hold it forth and bring it to the Lord's people so that they are those who truly know and hear and are transformed by this power. And so we understand then that the word of God has an authority and has a power that cultivates life. And so then, how do we conform? What, what is the significance of this mystery of godliness and the preaching of the gospel and these sorts of things? Well, the catechism's point is a call for us. A call for us to rest every day of my life. This may sound like once we're redeemed in Christ, we just continually nap. Now, some days it doesn't sound so bad. But the reality is that's not the intention of this rest. It's not an idle rest. It's a rest where we're resting from our temptations, our evil, and we're ultimately resting in the power of Christ. Now, this is not something that's intuitive. It's not something that we just naturally do. But it's a truly giving ourselves over to Christ and conforming to him. As the catechism goes on, that we let the Spirit work in me. Now, this is something interesting, isn't it? The catechism is telling us not to stand in the way uh, of the Spirit. And they say this is significant because many times people from evangelical churches or Arminian traditions would say, well, the Reformed deny the human will. Actually, this is an interesting place in our confessions to take someone of that persuasion. We don't deny the human will. We say the human will works, works wonderful. The problem is it doesn't work in a positive way naturally. What does the human will naturally do? The catechism is telling us naturally we kick against our Lord. That's what we naturally do. And so the catechism is saying we, we have to consciously, and this is counterintuitive, but consciously desire that we are handed over to God. And we say, well, where do we see this? Well, this is where I gave an example uh, some time ago in Acts 26, verse 14, where Paul recalls God saying, quit kicking against the goads. And, and we know what the goad is. You know, if you're familiar with animals, you may have animals that may need, to put it delicately, some gentle persuasion. And so you have a sharpened stick and you poke the animal to persuade the animal to do what you want it to do. And if the animal doesn't do what you want it to do, you uh, give it more motivation to put it nicely. And as you give the animal motivation, sometimes it may try and kick against the stick. Well, so the Apostle Paul, as we think about this process of a stubborn animal, what's he saying about us? That's who we are. The Lord prods us. We have a tendency to kick against his goat. And so the Apostle Paul had to learn the hard way. 
And so much like we can find in the story of Job and others, the, the reality is God wins. And that's what the catechism is saying. God's going to win. You might go into heaven kicking and screaming throughout this life, but at the end of the day, God's going to win. And so the catechism is saying instead of kicking against the goad, instead of fighting against God the whole way, catechism is saying, why don't you give yourself over to the Lord? Why don't you enjoy that communion you have with your Redeemer? He's goading you not because he hates you, but because he loves you. And he wants to commune with you. And he wants to fellowship with you. And he wants you to conform to him. Now again, it's not that God's in heaven wondering if he's stronger than us. I mean, God's stronger than us. You, you know, I always think back to the story of Jacob wrestling with God and, and how scary it really must have been. When you wrestle with an individual all through the night, you don't really know who the individual is, and it seems you're evenly matched. And then the individual merely teach, reaches down and touches your hip. I mean, this isn't some fancy move. To dislocate a hip takes some serious strength and some serious effort. And doing that with a mere touch communicates, I could have squashed you like a bug. This thing could have been over before you even knew it started. And that's what the catechism is saying to us. If God wants to squash us, he can squash us. You think of Job, oh, I'll fight you. I, I want to fight you and wrestle with you. God's like, all right, let's wrestle. Name the place. I'll meet you. And Job is brought to a place first to his knees, but not fully to repentance. And God says, all right, we're not done yet. Brings him to another place, breaks him, where Job puts his hand over his mouth and finally he says, you know what? I don't understand you. I'm not in a place to question you. You're greater than I am. I truly submit. And the catechism is saying, we don't need the Lord to use a big bat to bring us around. The catechism is encouraging us. Understand who you are. Understand we are redeemed in Christ. Understand we commune together because our God is gracious. It is God who willingly comes to us. It is God who graciously brings us into his presence. And so the catechism is saying, really think about that. Cherish that reality. And so what is Paul then, as he's writing to Timothy, about godliness? Well, the Apostle Paul, verses 6 through 10, does speak of training ourselves for godliness. Now, the bodily training, it says, is beneficial. Again, we think of a God creating us, body and soul, so it's not necessarily a bad thing to take care of the body. We should be stewards of our body. It says there's some value. But he points out the reality of what's beyond this age. That when we truly think about godliness and conforming to our Lord, not only is it a value of this present life, right, because we're drawn closer to God in this, but also it transitions into the age to come. So this is actually the only endeavor that is truly out of this world. It moves beyond this time in history. And so Paul's saying be, being oriented and, and, and desiring to conform to the Lord in this way is actually an honorable thing. And so we go on when we find out about this reality, this exhortation, going on in verses 11 through 16. Command and teach these things, right? So right here, 
He's saying to, the, to Timothy, don't, don't, it's not just make stuff up and just give commandments, but teach these things. What things? The things about Christ. The things about the gospel. The promises that, that are real in Scripture. The call for us to see that we are joined to the resurrected Christ who's ascended in heaven. We come together as a community and, and we worship. Hopefully as we're singing our songs, we hear the call to worship. We hear the reading of the law. And we go through these elements that, that we're really reflecting on the reality of who our God is. But going on, where he says, uh, devote yourself. So continue to be oriented to this. Do the exhortation and the preaching. Uh, seek to live his life in a manner that honors God. Being that example, obviously a, a pretty a tough calling that Paul's laying out there. But it's that calling of understanding who we are in Christ. And so when we hear these exhortations, we might say, well, how do these exhortations go? What, what does Paul want? Well, I think one of the things we, we have to take seriously, not only from Paul, but even the Reformers, when I think of Walter Marshall in the Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, where he points out that if we're not confident that Christ has really redeemed us, meaning that, that everything's taken away in Christ, and we can come before God and truly look within ourselves, see what, what, what needs to be tweaked and what needs to be tuned into the Lord's purpose. If we're not confident of what Christ has done, we can't do that. Because we're, we're going to be scared that if we bring these things before the Lord, that, that he's going to look down on us. And so Walter Marshall says you, you need to have a firm assurance that as you take hold of Christ by faith, he really has redeemed. He really has done his work. And how does the Apostle Paul exhort the church? You are set apart in Christ. You have been made alive in Christ. Christ has died for you. He has moved you from death to life, right? This is where the Apostle Paul starts. And so right here, as he's talking about godliness, what does he tell us? Listen, Christ walked this earth. He died. He's been resurrected. He's been witnessed in his resurrection. He's seated up in glory, and you're joined to this Christ. So when Paul tells us and exhorts Timothy, exhort the individuals in this, what does it mean? It means that we understand, all of us, who we are in Christ Jesus. We are those who have moved from death to life. And so as we're bringing our lives into conformity, we, we've talked about Christian liberty, trying to discern what's pleasing unto the Lord. In other words, there's certain things I may be able to do that you can't do. There may be certain things you can do that I can't do. Maybe there's triggers going on. But just because something triggers me doesn't mean I can turn to you and say, oh, therefore all these things are forbidden. It's understanding I need to have the humility that I work through my triggers and my issues and that I understand in, in my living out the gospel of Christ, certain things I'm free to do, certain things may move me into a place that, that would lead me to sin or turning away from the Lord for a time. And so what Paul's saying here to Timothy is be tuned into these things. Understand who we are. We are a people who have been raised with Christ. And be honest. In terms of our will, what, what does our will do? Well, our will is to kick against the goats, right? To kick against the Lord. And so the Apostle Paul is saying to us, don't kick against the Lord and his purpose. 
This is why I think it's important in terms of our prayer of confession. I, I try to pray every week, Lord, conform us to your will. In other words, in, in the prayer of that, it's asking God to, to show me or show us what's out of whack, what, what is out of line with his will. And, and convict me, conform me, and may I truly desire to live out the gospel for your honor and glory. That's what the catechism is telling us all the days of our lives to understand that we're going to struggle with this, but as we struggle in desiring to conform to the Lord, there is nothing we're going to confess to God he does not already know. And that's a pretty remarkable thing to think about. And so when we pray this prayer, conform us to your will, convict us, examine my heart, show me what needs to be worked on next. The unfortunate thing is sometimes the Lord brings us to a place where we feel kind of victorious, we kind of gain victory over something else, and all of a sudden the Lord convicts us of the next stage, which isn't always so fun, because you think you're doing well, and then you realize, I still got a lot of other stuff to go and, and work on. But it's the graciousness of our God that he does that. And as he continues to lead us and shepherd us, that's really what God is doing. He's shepherding us in our Christian walk. And so the catechism's encouraging us that this isn't something negative. It's a good thing. It's God leading and shepherding us in his care. And so when we ask that question then, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? How do we enter into the Lord's presence uh, as his redeemed creatures? Well, it's understanding where Paul writes to Timothy, starting with Christ, significance of Christ, being joined to Christ, made alive in Christ. And as we have this confidence, it's that desire that we stop kicking against the goats, that we want to conform to our Lord. And we understand that as our Lord convicts us of things, our, our inclination is to be like Jacob wrestling with God or Job and saying, oh, but you don't see these things. And we have to understand the Lord does see all those things. But he's showing us the things that, that we need to push through as his redeemed. Understanding that God isn't doing this because he's our enemy, but because he's our gracious father and our shepherd who's shepherding us through this life. So as we meet together, may we not then see the word of God as merely moral persuasion, but this is a way in which God continues to conform us to his will. The spirit works cultivating life within us. And as we sojourn under the sun, let us then hear what the catechism exhorts us. And all my days, I rest from my evil works. In other words, that I want to give myself over to the purpose of God and have his spirit work in me, that I conform to his image, to his will, as one who prays a prayer in sincerity of John the Baptist. May I be lesser, and may he be greater. Amen. <laughs> Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series 
through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.